Hello everyone, I'm Hazel Shaul, and I'm here to guide you through the toughest transitions in life, business, and even love. Welcome to Endings. We got to a point where there was a fire we couldn't put out. We couldn't put out. In today's episode, I'm speaking to Mike Quinn, CEO of Boost and formerly the co-founder and CEO of Zuna, hailed to be Africa's first fintech unicorn. Although things didn't turn out quite as he planned. Throughout his career, Mike has followed his gut instinct, otherwise called somatic decision-making. After you hear Mike's story, I'll explain just how important it is when making pivotal decisions, both personally and professionally. But first, let's go back to the beginning. Mike was a mechanical engineering student in Vancouver, but in his own words... I wasn't very technically inclined and didn't really want to go be an engineer. So he decided to look for something more purpose-driven. I stumbled across an organization called Engineers Without Borders that ended up sending me to Africa on two consecutive volunteer placements, first in Ghana and then in Zambia. And those were like very formative years for me because I was working with small-scale enterprises in rural areas like communities without electricity, family-owned businesses and small entrepreneurs. And I just learned a lot about the challenges that people were facing like in their day-to-day lives. Inspired by his time in Africa, Mike attained an MBA. Throughout his studies, he continued to keep an eye on the African market. And I had the idea of being an entrepreneur and connecting the entrepreneurs on the ground who were building scalable businesses with investors that were in the global north. And with that insight, Mike got back on a plane. Uh, Flew back to Zambia and met these two brothers who were building one of the first fintechs in Africa. And it was their vision of a cashless Africa, right? That kind of captivated me. That meeting led to a decade-long partnership as Mike became co-founder and CEO of Zuna, a mobile payments company they believed could make a cashless Africa a reality. We were processing 60 plus million dollars US per month of, of transactions with like a a person-to-person money transfer product. And we'd raised over $25 million or even a bit more of of venture capital as one of the first uh, really impact-driven startups in Africa. We'd gone through so many ups and downs and I I felt kind of invincible. Like I, I was learning that entrepreneurship is really around the ability to just persevere. But perseverance will only get you so far. You know, when you're running out of cash, you're running out of cash. Uh, And that momentum, you know, the negative momentum actually really builds. With Zuna in dire straits, Mike was reliant on a $40 million funding deal. He just had to fly to London and sign the contract. On touching down, he turned on his phone. And we had a $40 million investment round collapse, you know, literally at the last second. So, you get off the plane after a long haul flight. You get the news that this deal has fallen through. What in the world do you do next? Just walking around London for hours, and then I I think I went to sleep at like, you know, 3.30 in the afternoon. The what-if scenarios of we had 250 staff that had all been working for years to build the company, but we're all expecting this deal to close. And they all knew that I got, like I flew there to close it. 
And so I, I felt the weight of that ex, like expectation. And I just like, I almost couldn't deal with this, this horrible news. And then I then had to go to a board meeting the next morning, you know, and I'd, I'd broken the news and had a few phone calls. People were very supportive, but they're like, let's talk about it in the meeting. And then I, I went to the board meeting and I had this, uh, this presentation really around like, you know, here's the strategy going forward. And we were going to become this digital bank, launch all these new products. And, and, you know, we had finally the capital to achieve everything that was a part of our long-term vision. And I, I remember starting this meeting saying, well, we've worked really hard to get to this point, And I think we deserve the, the kind of the time to, to actually like as management to like present what this vision is, because like we can find another investor. I was still like, almost in denial and in problem solving mode. And I'm like, doesn't mean our strategy's wrong. The investor changed course, but like the business is still good. The, you know, everybody loves the strategy and the team and the product and the culture. We've been talking about this for months. And it was, it was pretty clear that I had like lost the room. And uh, I think, I can't remember who said it, but somebody eventually was like, you know, I think we just, we need to start being more realistic and actually talking about like, is this the time to start pursuing a sale of the company? Right. And I was like, I couldn't even like process that this was happening. It was just, uh, it was so hard. We ended up, ended up having like a good meeting and, and uh, it was like very somber, but like getting to the end of it and like we had a couple different plans and we're like, okay, there's, you know, we could try to find some new money. We could try to look at like a, a partial sale to get cash in. We could try to do like a cut like of our staff and like a restructuring. And it was just, I was, it took me a while, but like I, from that point forward, I was like, working 24 hours a day, right? Like when I was sleeping, I was working. My mind was thinking about all the things that needed to happen. And it was like a very complex Rubik's cube and just like the stress levels went through the roof. And I can't even remember some of it, to be honest. Like I was just like almost in a flow state and some of it was like very productive, but then other parts was just like facing a cliff and you're about to like run off it. So you need to like act here and now. Yeah, it's interesting when we talk about any kind of ending because it's linked to the psychology of grief and those emotional responses that you described, the shock, the denial, the bargaining, all of those responses that people experience when they they lose something or someone that means something to them. But when you experience it and you think, no, that's exactly what it is. You're grieving, but you don't even know it at the time as grieving, even down to the need to just go to sleep it's because your brain shuts down. I'm fascinated when you say rubbish decisions. Well, no surprise, you think when you're that much in shock and that much in emotional pain, it's like your part of your frontal lobe shuts down. <laughs> so you're probably making the worst decisions of your professional career. <laughs> and yet you're in charge of a moving organisation. <laughs> so I suppose that's the interesting thing, as you say, that it's not something you would want to go through. It's not something you'd wish on anybody. And yeah, you've turned something around from it. I think that's what I really wanted to do for, you know, most of our conversation was to sort of pick up that story from the point when you're making this painful process of, of leaving as to how you picked yourself up. So from the moment you decided or the moment you, that was it, no longer CEO, you've walked away from a business you've invested 10 years in, what did you do? I felt much better than like when I started at the beginning of the week. Um, and it just probably took a couple of weeks to kind of work out when I announced it to the, to the company, it was like a, a surprise, but not really a surprise, but it was, it was kind of more sad that I'd had to announce that a lot of them would also be losing their jobs, but people kind of saw the writing on the wall at that point. But I, I felt the company would be in good hands and secure. And then 
I knew I was exhausted and I immediately felt this urge to like start again and to almost like prove to myself, but also to everybody else that I was still relevant. I, I actually remember I had like, <laughs> wasn't somebody I, I, I particularly talked to anymore, but like who, who told me, he's like, oh yeah, like you got to get used to the fact that you're not a CEO anymore. And I'm like, no, like I am a CEO, just not of this business, <laughs> right? I'm like, it wasn't a very helpful comment, but it like kind of, it really sunk in where I'm just like, oh, like all these people like aren't going to see me as relevant anymore. And it like almost fed into this, you know, desire to like do the next thing or jump into something and start something new. And then of course, everybody is asking two questions, like what happened and what are you going to do next? Um, and, you know, if, if I was like young and single, I would have gone and traveled the world. I had two, you know, two young kids and I, I just, you know, I dropped them off to school and I picked them up at the end of the day. And during the day I went for walks, I, I went hiking and I mountain biking and like, you know, I've never hiked by myself before. I'm very extroverted. So, you know, did a lot of thinking and I, I started enjoying it. And then where I, it was my mind started clearing, it was actually probably harder on my wife <laughs> during that period because then the stress started transferring to her of like, oh, well, we're going to, we're single income. Like I, I didn't, didn't really get a cash out or anything. Are we going to lose our house that we bought? Like recently, our first house we bought together, she was, uh, not in a particularly great paying job. So she's needed to start looking around. So like this, you know, I, I was kind of on my, my walkabout, like, I'm like, oh, I'm starting to enjoy this. Like uh, not going to the office and de-stressing. And, um, but it, it, she had to pick up the slack a little bit, but it, it ended up being like a, an amazing time. And then I didn't kind of set off to write a book, but I got to the point where, and through the encouragement of a lot of people, including my wife was like, just like start writing and like get the story on paper. Cause not only is it like an interesting story, it was like the, the writing process was extremely therapeutic. And that just then consumed like all of me. I got to the point where I, I had to start, you know, at the beginning of, of like, how did I end up working for a fintech in Africa? And that was just like a question where I had to go really deep into my own memory bank um, and, and like talk to people that I hadn't talked to in a long time. And it was a really happy time. So I, I started like remembering that like the, the end was hard, but I'm like, wow, this wasn't always hard. And like the formation of the company and how, how hard it was to actually get started was like an amazing experience. Then I also had to like write the hard things. And, and I had like these very emotional swings where I'd like come out of a session of like writing and I'd either be feeling great or I'd come out and I'd just be like totally exhausted because I'm like, I just had to like relive. The like, worst bit. You know, this, <laughs> the worst bit. Right. Which was always around people, right. People and, and funding, <laughs> but it, it ended up being like a great process. And then, and then when I was kind of done the first draft, I'm like, oh, I feel better. I, I have like clarity on what I want to do next. Cause it kind of helping to process the learnings of like, Oh, how would I do this again differently? And how would this be relevant to the new business kind of gave me a lot of ideas and energy. And, uh, and then I had like a manuscript for a book, which I never would have written otherwise. So but I believe there were seven versions before you finished. <laughs> yeah, the editing process is, <laughs> is hard because you, like I wrote the first one and I was like, great, done. So it's like, everybody's going to love it. It's going to change the world and I can go on to like do my next thing because I'm done with it. Then I, I gave it like, of course, people who love me are like, yeah, this is like really good. And they're living through this emotion, but gentle feedback was like, oh, well, this is kind of like a personal memoir. It's too long. It's too detailed. It's not going to be generalized enough for like other people to actually want to read it. You know, if you publish it, like nobody will buy it. Um, Harsh. 
<laughs> yeah, it's like it's really good. Like just yeah, keep it to yourself. Like it's nice. And I, and by that point, I'm like, oh, it's a shame to keep it to myself. And and like my wife was very encouraging too. It's like you know, there's so many people that will will learn from this. I was talking to a lot of other founders who were like resonating with my story and like sharing theirs. And it's just like, nobody talks about like failure or in like your case, like Hazel endings. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause it's always about like how I was successful and I became like the unicorn. And the, the only like failure stories are when like you become a billionaire and then you get kicked out of your own company and right. Uh, you get fired and then there's a Netflix documentary about you, like whatever. <laughs> but like the experience of most entrepreneurs is, uh, it's much more common to, to mine, of um, more complex than than they thought. So I, I started realizing, like you know, I, I I could do like a be of service to other founders um, and people in in not only the African ecosystem but you know potentially abroad about like sharing the Zona story and then like the, the failures that I experienced and what I learned from them like more broadly and and then that was like the multiple editing, rewriting, processing period and. It had one po- really positive benefit that I'll, I'll kind of end on here is that um, it allowed me to live an extra year. And then the, the last section of the book is called Winning, about how I was able to then like go launch a new business. During COVID, which I you know wasn't anticipating, it wasn't like the book ended with like Zona falling off a cliff and I left the end. It was like <laughs> the book ended with I'd started something new and there was like a, you know green shoots yeah. coming up. And, um, and if I had published earlier and I didn't have wouldn't have gone through the processing, that wouldn't have been the ending. So I'm, I'm very grateful that I did. Well, one of the things that I think is really helpful about discussing endings is to know you have to say goodbye to say hello. So it's that idea of, yeah, even as horrendous as the end was for you, the fact that it's been able to give you this opportunity to start something maybe with a different perspective. Um, there's a couple of points that I was just fascinated that I've got to ask you before we go. Um, and one of them was... Because I'm interested in somatic decision-making, particularly for bright people who tend to get in their own head when they're making decisions. But it's that gut point that when your gut tells you something. So looking back, if you think about some of the good decisions you made versus ones that subsequently turned out to be bad decisions, do you think you felt a difference? So definitely, I had the benefit of a lot of coaching and like uh, personality and like psychometric testing and all this stuff. And like, I learned that I, I'm a very strong, intuitive thinker. And I have a co-founder now who's like the opposite of that, like a very strong, like sensing thinker, right? Yeah. So okay. I've had to learn to actually listen to my gut and trust it. It's not, of course, it's not always right. But, you know, so, some people who are more sensing just require like a lot of data. And then they will move a little bit late because they like sometimes the data is not there. And then there's people like me who don't require a lot of data and decision-making, can make big, take big intuitive leaps, but then I have a blind spot of I can ignore data. I, I mentioned this earlier in the conversation. Um, I was probably ignoring the data. If it's purely listening to your gut, it's got the same neurons as a clever cat. Yeah. <laughs> That's why bo- have co-founders and board is like really important, right, is to have... Mm-hmm. Have people that are not like they're they're supportive, but you need that diversity of thinking, right? And you got to get to the point where, like, th- this is in, in the best case, we had that. Like for sure, we had some amazing board members, and like, um, I, I was very fortunate with like our founding team, and and this is probably like a, a good aspiration for anybody who wants to be a board member or executive. It's like how to be like caring and supportive, but also be like truthful and like honest in like your feedback. 
especially if you're a non-executive board member, it's easy to like show up and, and you're not in the fire and to be like, I think we should do this and you're not doing that. So therefore like you're wrong and I'm right. And then, you know, it creates a bad situation, but it's like, it's much better if you have people that are coming together and they're like, okay, you know, we're all in this position and we, we need to find a way out of it. And like, Mike, you're the CEO, you've got to make the call on this, but like, let's really make sure we go through like option A, B, C, and D, and then like, let's vote and, and try to be systematic about it. As opposed to what was probably happening as the end is I'm like, you know, this is what I'm doing. This is what we're doing. This is what I think we should do. And everybody's sitting back waiting for that plan to, to come true or not. Um, and then quietly thinking like, oh, it's probably not going to work. And, you know, we're either going to need to fire Mike or he's going to quit. <laughs> right. So in, in the moment, because you know, the stress level rises for everybody, like when investors have real money, real losses that their employees are starting to think about, like looking for other jobs and thinking about like their own family situations. These are complex, like very stressful decisions and situations like to come out of. And that's why it's so interesting to explore with a bit of hindsight because people who are in similar decision situations themselves, it's so easy to, as you say, lose sight of what data do I need, what instincts do I need to listen to and which to ignore. But talking of which, the final question for me was around your mentor. You're very fortunate to have an incredible mentor all the way through in Patrick. And I was interested in that moment, I think it was about six months before the end when he was saying, time to sell. And that was when you decided, no, double down, back yourself. And it was that moment that I think without all the stress that was surrounding that, you know, because I think there are moments, aren't there, when you get advice from people who are very experienced and you still have to take that judgment call of, no, I believe I'm right. How do you balance that sort of confidence versus overconfidence now with everything you've learned about yourself? Oh, again, with difficulty. <laughs> I, I, I honestly believe that there don't, there are no rights or wrongs. The hardest judgment calls to make are like decisions that are like 55 one way or 45 the other way. Like it, it's easy when it's like, you know, it's 90, 10, right? It's like, oh, bet on the 10% chance and maybe you get super lucky, but it's like more often than not, you even know you're betting on that. But like in, um, even in, in our case, and like, I, I got this, yeah, this advice from, from my mentor, he was clever enough to say, he, like he, and he phrased it saying like, he's like, Mike, I care about you and your career is going to last a much lot longer and you're going to go on and do something else amazing. This is something that you should seriously consider. Now, he wasn't saying like, you should do it and this is the right answer, right? He, he framed it in a way that like, now I look back and I'm like, yeah, he was, he was telling me something that I, I kind of wish I, I leaned into and the act, like I was more action oriented towards um, at the time. But he also was smart enough to know like, well, he, he might not have been right because he didn't know the context and he wasn't on the ground. And there could have been a different outcome where we might have struck a, like a, a partnership or, or had like a new investor. Because the thing with investors, right, it's not like they kind of come out of the woodwork sometimes. Like it's the ones that you think are going to be there often pass on you. But then you're going to introduce to somebody else who introduce you to somebody else. And then somebody's like, I love this business and let me put in some money. And then we would have been fine. We would have been saved. Or, or the market timing. Um, you know, the, the economy picks up and then everybody suddenly looks differently at, at the same problem. You know, it's it's really, really difficult. Um, I've probably in my increasingly old age now, um, uh, like I have the benefit of experiences to draw on, but I, I also um, can play the probabilities a little bit more. 
you know, I know enough about myself, so I, I'm more aware of my blind spots. And I know, like, even when I think I'm right, in like my youth, I would have been like, I think I'm right, like, let's go. Now I'm like, I think I'm right, but I also know that I probably need to go like get some second opinion or some advice from others and, and make sure I like I'm aware of the risks and then get to the point where it's like, okay, let's all get in a room together and we need to make like a call. You know, just being more systematic around decision-making is one thing that's important. And yeah, one piece of advice I got uh, after leaving as well, um, it wasn't advice, it was more like just a comment. It was like, when hope becomes the strategy, you're screwed, <laughs> right? <laughs> but it, but it's, yeah. it's a, it was a good thing to, to look back on, to be like, yeah, we got closer to the end and we were just like, if this happens and then this happens and this happens, we'll be fine, right? So that, that to me now is like much more of a red flag where I can deal with like adversity and a lot of complexity because I'm like, oh, like, you know, there's, there's more things going well than not going well and therefore we're going to be fine. But when, when you get to the point where you're like, okay, I really need this to happen um, to get out of this situation, that's when you need to probably take back control a little bit more, right? And be like, okay, this is, um, th this, you know, might happen and it could work out well, but like I've got other stakeholders to look after and I've got to actually plan for like a more, probabilistic outcome. When we are making decisions as business owners, we're often using a lot of different data points. And yes, as Mike said, you can get more data all the time, but a lot of our decisions can be gut. Now that's not flaky. It's not a soft decision. This is our unconscious kicking in. Our conscious minds can make decisions there about a second, but our unconscious minds can take a decision in about 400 microseconds. And instead of our conscious minds, which can use five to nine bits of concrete information, our unconscious minds can deal with eight million bits of data. These are incredibly fast, incredibly powerful decisions, but they can be so quick we may ignore them. It can be a tightening of the stomach, it can be a flutter, it can be a feeling on our skin. When you really know how to tune into yourself, you might notice, if you think back to some really good decisions you've made, how did it feel? And then think back to decisions that, in hindsight, really were not your finest. Again, what did you feel and where? And what you might notice is there is a difference. So, the next time you have to make a decision, tune in and what are you feeling? because that will give you a really good sense of what is your body telling you. Now, Daniel Kahneman won a Nobel Prize for this working uh, in his book, Thinking Fast and Slow. So I said, it's really good science, good neuroscience. And you'll start to notice uh, more about yourself and how you make decisions. And you can simply add this in as another data point. But next time that somebody says to you, this is a decision made by my gut or I can feel it in my bones, it's not as flaky as it sounds. Now, you may also have heard how positive Mike is, even having gone through such an emotional, difficult time. He's very upbeat. And I wanted to just talk very quickly about learned optimism, because when you're going through such a difficult time, particularly one that can trigger those feelings and emotions of grief, being able to stay positive is an incredibly important way through. In fact, there is a principle that we talk about a lot in the kind of work I do as a business psychologist, where you ground yourself in the reality of what's happening right now and then stay very positive about the future. 
But the positivity about the future is based in research conducted by Martin Seligman. And Seligman originally conducted research with dogs and apologies for any animal lovers, this is awful. But he basically administered a very small electric shock into a box where dogs could then move into another box which had no electric shocks. And as any stimulus response creature should, the dogs initially moved away from the horrible electric shock. But over time, what he noticed was they stopped moving away. And it was like they gave up and accepted pain. And that was really quite horrifying to the researchers at the time. And of course, the question became, do humans do the same thing? If we experience too much pain or too much sadness or too much negativity, do we become hopeless and helpless? Of course, the answer is yes, of course we do. People with chronic pain conditions usually, after about five years, stop trying to get any further treatment or diagnosis. So what we look in business is that if you've been through a prolonged period of difficulty or a, a negativity, it's really easy that people start to feel pessimistic. And what we're watching out for in human beings is the way we talk about the things that are going wrong. And it's usually expressed in three Ps, pervasiveness, permanence, personalization. So pervasiveness is how much of your life is this affecting. If you get a chance to read Mike's book, and I absolutely do recommend it, you see this sense of it's just this, it's just the business, just this issue. It's not everything that went wrong, it was just this bit. And that just this element means that something going wrong in one part of your life doesn't creep into or ruin every part of your life. Mike clearly draws strength from his family, and that's really important. And that sense of being able to keep one part of your life okay while something's going wrong in another, just the same as if your relationship's not working well, doesn't affect how you perform at work, that ability to just, it's just this that's going wrong. And then if we can cope with the pervasiveness, then we move on to permanence. And permanence has been able to say, the negative thing is just now. It's not always, it's not gonna go on forever. Now, interestingly, you combine those two, finding a temporary, and specific reason for things going wrong is the art of hope. And, and I know Mike said that, you know, if hope is your strategy, you're stuffed. But you know, the one thing when it comes to human beings is we do actually need hope. It just can't be the thing you guide your business by. So recognizing those two things are really important, that if something's going wrong, it's just this, it's just now. And the bit that's really intriguing, though, is that it's not me. The final P is personalization. When people are feeling really negative, they start to blame themselves. They start to think there's something wrong with them. And that's what you need to really watch out for. Now, as you heard, Mike does not blame himself. He recognizes what he could do differently, but he also recognizes what was to do with the environment, what was going on around him, what was the economy, and that ability to flip things out to hold blame where it needs to be and not take it all on is really important part of being positive. So thinking about those three P's is something you can do for yourself if you're going through a difficult time. Is keep the mantra in mind, it's just this, it's just now, it's not me. There are some limits to that final one of just me because of course 
the one big journey Mike's been on is really looking at himself and those seven edits of the book that really helped him to tune in and understand that sometimes there are some things that really are us and that we do need to look at. And being able to do that really honestly and vulnerably, to do something about it so it doesn't happen again and learn about those things so that in the future we can do it differently. And yes, we know being too positive can be an issue because you assume it can't possibly go wrong. And then when it does, it can be quite a shock as Mike experienced. But I think this is something that uh, certainly in terms of surviving the tsunami of shit that can be managing an SME and founding a business, uh, staying positive is definitely one of the top tips for getting through all of this. And it's something uh, uh, I'll be really intrigued to see how you get on with. But I think there's there's lots that you can get from Mike's experience and, and it's all there in his book and I really hope you get a chance to read it. If you're interested in understanding the endings happening in your own life a little better, I've the perfect thing for you. It's my five-step worksheet, developed specifically for listeners of this podcast and based on years of my research. This first step will only take you 20 minutes to complete, but will bring you a lot closer to understanding how to make these difficult decisions around endings. Click the link in the show notes to download your Thriving Through Endings worksheet now. Finally, if you know somebody who might benefit from hearing about coping with losing a business or the sudden departure, please share it with them. I'm Hazel Shaw, and I hope you'll join me again for another episode of Endings.